All right, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Good to see you all. Good to be back. It's been a couple of weeks. I had the pleasure of doing my cousin's wedding on the East Coast. When you're a pastor in the family, that means you do all the weddings and all the funerals. But I'm glad that this got to be a wedding. Uh, And then last week, I was the speaker at a youth camp happening in North Idaho. So that was also a pleasure. Very much enjoyed that. But nothing beats being with church family. Amen? So it was good to see you all again this morning. And I got to say, I am just excited for this fall. It's been a good summer, but there are great midweek programs great Bible studies, things that are taking place where church is not just something that we go to, but it's something that we get to take part in. And so if you are new, if you started attending this summer or even earlier this year, and you're finding that at this point you're kind of just coming in and out on Sunday, we see you, uh, we want to be connected with you, and hold on, there are going to be so many opportunities later this fall, not just with Bible studies and home groups, but also with newcomers lunches, membership classes. There's going to be a lot of chances to get connected. So hang in there. And this wasn't, uh, I didn't say this in the first service, but if you haven't filled out a connection card, use your bulletin to fill out a connection card so we can be the church together. That's our goal here at Graham Emanuel. So let's pray Uh, as we get ready to open God's word. Let's pray that he uses his word to mold us, to strengthen us, to sanctify us, to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together to that end. Heavenly Father, this is your church. We get to be members of it. We get to serve you in this church But this church belongs to you. It is for your glory and it is for your purposes alone. Only your agenda here at this church, Lord. We pray that by your spirit, you will soften our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to your word. Because, Lord, we know that it is only by your spirit and exposing the word to our heart that we will be conformed into the image of your Son and that we will be used by you to proclaim your coming kingdom, to make disciples, to teach and to baptize wherever we go. We know that this can only happen as a result of you working through your spirit and your word. So we pray that this morning you will do a special work in your word to equip us to glorify you with everything in our lives. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. All God's people said, amen. So today I want to talk about perspective. Perspective has a way of impacting your actions, doesn't it? Two men can be digging a hole in the desert, but if one man is digging a hole because there's a gun up to his head, and another man is digging a hole because he has a map to buried treasure, that's going to change the way those two men dig that hole. Perspective changes the way that we act, it changes the way that we spend our money, it's the way, changes the way that we talk or spend our time. It's hard to wake up early in the morning to go to work, but it's always a lot easier to wake up early to go on vacation. Isn't it funny how that works? 
When a man loves a woman, it totally changes his perspective. He'll give up all comforts. He'll even sleep out in the rain, right, if that's the way that it ought to be. The first service didn't get that reference. I see that you guys did. I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad sign for your holiness. But anyways, perspective impacts our actions. So you can guess what my next question will be which is how does perspective impact the way that you live as a Christian, assuming that you are a Christian, assuming that you've repented of your sins and put your trust by faith in Christ's death and resurrection for your salvation. If that's true of you this morning, what is your perspective? The reason why I ask that is because I believe that many Christians as a default tend to slip into an earthly perspective. And when I say an earthly perspective, I'm not necessarily talking about a secular perspective, although that could certainly be a part of it. When I say that Christians have a tendency to fall into an earthly perspective, what I mean is that they tend to live their lives under the false belief that life on this earth is as good as it's going to get for them. That this world is all there is. That heaven may be something that they hope for. It's something that they would rather go to other than hell. It's something that they wish for. But heaven isn't really a thing that changes their perspective in how they live on earth. Therefore, the way they think about money, the way they think about romantic relationships, the way they think about how other people feel about them, maybe even the way they think when watching the news and seeing what's happening on the news, Everything is through the filter of this world is our forever home, or at least the false belief, the false notion even Christians may have sometimes that this is the best it's going to get for them here in this temporary place on earth. Are you someone that lives with an earthly perspective? If that may be you this morning, we're going to talk about that today in Colossians chapter 3. Because in Colossians 3, verse 1, Paul is going to talk about what the perspective should be of a true believer that is growing. So if you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, we are going to look now where Paul is going to teach the Colossians about how they as Christians can live a life according to the right perspective. And as you're turning there, just a reminder that this is, uh, we are now starting the second half of Paul's letter to the Colossians. That I'm kind of glad that we took a two-week break in between the last sermon in chapter 2 and today's message in the beginning of chapter 3 because this represents a seismic shift in the focus of Paul's letter. You may remember, I mentioned this often at the beginning of sermons, but really the point of the letter has been Paul explaining to the Colossians how they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How everything up to chapter 2, verse 5, that famous therefore statement, which we have a slide for, was Paul talking about how the Colossians had received Jesus. He then, for the rest of the letter, is going to talk about how they can walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. You remember that in chapter 2 of Colossians, we talked about how Jesus was sufficient that he was the means or the source by which Christians could walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and that walking according to any other thing in the earth was insufficient. 
But now at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is going to focus on specifics. He's going to focus on practicals. Colossians chapter 3 is maybe one of the most important chapters in the New Testament. Paul is going to specifically lay out a blueprint for how practically a Christian can actually live a life that is worthy of the Lord. Just a fun trivia fact for you, this is very typical of the way that Paul likes to write letters. It's very regular that Paul, in the first half of his letter, will focus heavily on doctrine, or what we call orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is made up of two words meaning right thinking. That's what orthodoxy is, right thinking. So if you look at Romans, he does this in Ephesians, he does this in Galatians. He'll start in the first half, roughly, focusing on this is what you should think. This is what is true about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But then in the second half of his letter, he tends to shift then to what we as Christians should do as a result of it. Not just orthodoxy, right thinking, but then in the second half of the letter, Paul shifts to what's called orthopraxy, which is right doing, right practice. And that's what's happening here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul is shifting as he's giving instructions about how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He's going for the rest of the letter to talk about practicals. These are the things that you should do in order to live a life that is worthy and pleasing to the Lord. But it's so appropriate that in verse 1, Paul doesn't just start by giving a laundry list of things to do and things not to do. He doesn't say, okay, do more of this, do more of that, stop doing this, stop doing that. He starts with perspective. Because what your perspective is, is going to impact what your behavior is. And if you're curious about what your perspective is towards anything, just look at your behavior. Your behavior will give a clue of what your attitude or your perspective or what your hope is in. So it makes sense that Paul, as he's beginning the second half of the letter, as he begins this chapter on practicals, how to live a life pleasing to the Lord, he starts with perspective. And this is what he says in verse 1, where it may not show up in your English translation, but he's using the word therefore at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 3. Based on everything that's been said up to this point, he says, if then, or if therefore, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The big idea for this morning, the, the summary of the point of what Paul is communicating to the Colossians, is that in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we are called to live on earth with a focus on heaven. That is our big idea. To live on earth, not to try to avoid earth, not to try to escape earth, to live the life of a nun or a monk. Paul talked about that several sermons ago. To live in the world, to live on this earth, but to live on this earth with a perspective that is geared towards heaven. That's what Paul means when he uses that word seek in the way that he says, seek the things that are above. Set your eyes on, put your focus on, lock in on 
the things that are above. That's going to be the instruction that Paul gives. And for the rest of this morning's message, in verse 1, Paul is going to give three specific ways in which Christians can live on earth with a focus on heaven. I encourage you to memorize that big idea this week. Maybe write it on a post-it note, maybe share it with your spouse or your family members before they go to work or go to school, to live on earth with a focus on heaven. What a way to start your day. Paul's going to give three reasons or three ways to live with a focus on heaven. The first point is going to be this, that we can live with a focus on heaven by living by faith in your spiritual resurrection. Point number one is to live by faith in your spiritual resurrection. This is coming from Paul's beginning in verse 1, where he says, If, therefore, since you have been raised with Christ. Everything that he's going to say for the rest of chapter 3, it's only possible because Christ has been raised. In chapter 2, Paul focused heavily on the fact that Christ was crucified for us and that we were also crucified with Christ. If you were to look back earlier in chapter 2, you'll see those verses in verses 11 and in verse 12, where we were circumcised with Christ, we were buried with Christ, we vicariously shared in Christ's death on the cross. But remember, what does a dead person do? Nothing. Which is helpful when it comes to us sinning, Because when confronted with the opportunity to sin, we can remind ourselves by faith that we are dead to sin because we have been crucified with Christ. But it doesn't matter if Jesus died on the cross for us if he didn't rise again on the third day. We wouldn't be here if he didn't rise on the third day. I would not be here if Jesus did not rise on the third day. Nothing else matters if Jesus remained dead. But the point is that Jesus did not remain dead. He did rise on the third day. That's why we meet on Sundays in remembrance of the day that Jesus was resurrected. Because Jesus didn't just die for sin, he also rose so that we could have new life. Chapter 2 focused on how we should consider ourselves crucified with Christ and dead to sin by sharing in Christ's death. But now in chapter 3, when Paul talks about how we should live, He begins by saying that we need to have a perspective that reminds ourselves daily that we just haven't died to sin with Christ, but we are also raised again. We are new creatures, as Paul puts it. We are, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we have been born again. If you are a truly saved person, you haven't just died with Christ, you have also been raised to new life. Yes, someday you will experience a bodily resurrection that has not yet happened yet. But that does not mean that right now at this moment, if you are saved, you have not experienced a spiritual resurrection. You are a new person. The reason why you still struggle with sin and lust is because you are a new resurrected person who hasn't gotten rid of this sinful flesh yet. Someday we'll be given new flesh that is perfectly paired with our new resurrected selves. But in the meantime, the way that we are called to navigate this earth 
the way we are called to live still in these earthly bodies, these sinful bodies, is with the perspective, and really perspective is just another word for faith, faith in remembrance that we have shared in Christ's resurrection. That just as he was raised on the third day, so were we. So you have to ask yourself, are your actions, are your words, do they give evidence that Jesus is alive? When other people see the way that you behave, is it obvious to them that you are a new person compared to what you were before you were saved? Is it obvious to the world that you have a kind of life, a kind of spiritual resurrected life that is different from those that the Bible describes as dead in their trespasses? The number one best way that God communicates the resurrection of Jesus is his word. The second best way is through your worshiping obedience. People show that Jesus is alive. Christians give evidence that there is a resurrection by they themselves living a resurrected life. So that means living with a perspective or living with a faithful remembrance that we have been resurrected with the Lord. There are several verses that talk about this. Colossians 2.12 talks about this, but you might remember in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, which we looked at about a month ago, reminds us that we have shared in Christ's death but that we have also shared in his resurrection. Therefore, the first way to live on earth with a focus on heaven is to remind yourself that you have not just been crucified with Christ, but that you have also been resurrected with Christ. Therefore, act like it. You don't have to do it under your own strength. You don't have to try to fake it. You can remember that you are given new life to do these things of obedience and to put your trust and dependence on the reality that you are resurrected in hope and expectation of the day when you will also be physically resurrected. Let's go now to the second point. The second way that Paul gives of how we can have a perspective of living on earth with a heavenly focus is not just by living by faith or gospel living in remembrance of our spiritual resurrection, but also by living with Christ as our goal. That is your second point. To live with Christ as your goal. And please do not misunderstand this point. Because much danger is done to the American church through euphemisms. We become very normalized to cliches, don't we? And to little Christianese statements that we become very used to hearing that, oh, we need to make Christ our everything. We need to live with Christ as our goal. Do not fall into that trap this morning of hearing this second point and thinking, oh, isn't that nice? We're supposed to live with Christ as our goal. Oh, that's a really sweet reminder. We need to look deeper at what Paul is pointing at here. Because when he says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 that since you have been raised with Christ, if that's true of you, he says, therefore, he gives a command. He says, seek the things that are above, and then look at that next phrase, where Christ is. Paul puts the focus 
on the person of Christ. Not just heaven, not just a generic form of Christianity, but on a person, the God-man Jesus. You might remember in chapter 2, one of the issues, especially that some of the Jewish people were struggling with, was an overemphasis on angels. They thought so much about heaven, but they weren't thinking about God's Messiah in heaven. They were thinking about angels and just uh, heaven itself. The only reason why heaven matters is because Jesus is there. Jesus is the point of heaven. Even if non-Christians could actually be allowed to go into heaven, they would still hate it because Jesus is there. And even if people in hell were given the opportunity to come out and be with Jesus, as much as they are suffering in hell, the idea of being with Jesus would be worse to them because the point is Christ. And in the same way, Paul says, that you need to set your eyes on things above. But he's not just talking about angels. He's not just talking about heaven. He's talking about Christ. The reason why you need to set your things on, on what is above is because that is where Christ is. Christ is the point. He's the goal. He's the focus. Too often, we have turned Christianity into an adjective where we just slap it in front of a label of all these other things that we're doing in the world. We have Christian music, we have Christian movies, we have Christian coffee shops, we have Christian restaurants, we have Christian schools, Christian, Christian, everything. We want to have a Christian nation, we want to have a Christian news station. We have turned what God has made about Christ into simply an adjective of a good set of morals that we would like to be true in our world. So we come up with all these things and we slap a label of Christian and we say, well, uh, we're, we're going to enjoy these Christian things where God wants the goal and the focus of Christians to be deeper than that. He doesn't just want us to live a life where we're insulating ourselves with these things that we're labeling as Christian he wants us to live a life where we're pursuing Christ. As Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he said, all these things that I do, they're rubbish. All these things that I try to do for God, they're filthy rags. My righteousness is only in Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 10, maybe my life verse, one of my favorite verses, a verse that I've actually preached on here at this church years ago. Paul says in Philippians 3, 10, he says, I want to know Christ. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, being made like him in his death. Paul's goal, his perspective, his objective was knowing the person of Christ. Not just living a cultural Christianity, not just surrounding oneself with biblical moralism that we call Christianity. And don't get me wrong, I enjoy Christian music. I enjoy Christian movies. I enjoy Christian chicken sandwiches. I like all those things. But I hope that I like Christ more. I hope that's more of my focus. That's more of my goal. That's more of my objective. 
This is what we mean when we say that Christianity isn't a religion, but a relationship. That phrase has been abused in many ways, but this is a right way to think about it. That we are called to have affection for our creator who made us. That the word became flesh and actually walked among us, and that someday we will dwell with him. The hymn in the garden is not full of Bible citations. It actually has very little theology in the song in the garden. But I guarantee you it's many of your favorite hymns. And you go to the hospital when people die, it's the song that they want to sing because that hymn talks about walking with Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus, talking with him, walking with him, telling me, telling him that I am his own. And the joy that we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. We love that hymn because that's what we're designed for. We're designed to have a relationship with our Creator. We're designed for a kind of Christianity that is deeper than just morals, that is deeper than just culture, but is about a person. That person being God, the man Jesus Christ. So that's why Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, Live your life on heaven with a focus on, or live your life on earth with a focus on heaven, with a heavenly perspective, but don't think that that means just buying all these heaven is for real books or living this kind of George Bailey, it's a wonderful life, heaven kind of perspective of angels and floating around with harps. Having a heavenly focus means having a Christ focus. Or even David in Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire other than you. You are my portion. You are my prize forever. That's the kind of perspective that God wants us to have. A perspective that is after his own heart, which is in the person of Jesus Christ. We do this really in three ways. The way that you make Christ the person, the focus of your Christianity is by dwelling with him, by abiding with him, as Jesus says in John 15. And you can do this by spending time with him in his word, by spending time with him in personal prayer, and also by spending time in the local church, the body of Christ. If you're doing these things, if you are purposely spending time in God's word to read the words of God through Jesus Christ, if you're spending time privately to talk to the Lord, where Christ is our advocate to the Father, to even pray on our behalf by his Spirit, and if we're spending time with brothers and sisters in Christ who have the Spirit of Jesus, who have the Spirit of God in them, if those are things that you're pursuing, you will find that it is impossible for you to think about Christianity in any other way other than centered on the person of Christ. Christianity is a religion of affection. It's a religion of love. The reason why we obey is because we love the Lord. When you fell in love with your spouse, when you fell in love with your fiance, when you fell in love with your boyfriend or girlfriend, it totally changed your perspective on everything. You were happy to blow all your money. You were happy to spend all your time. Other people even noticed that. They saw evidence of that, and they knew that you were in love with someone because of the new priority that was dictating your actions. Let's have a love for Christ. When a man loves the Lord, that shows that it changes everything that we do. That gives evidence in how we spend our money, our time, our words, our actions. Let's now look at the third point. And this third point is a little bit out of left field. 
maybe a controversial point or even a difficult point to understand. But it's a point that must be said because it's a point that Paul includes in verse 1 of chapter 3. When we talk about living on earth with a focus on heaven, we know that that means by faith remembering our spiritual resurrection. We know that it means living with Christ, the person, as our goal, but also as a warning. The third point is do not try to bring heaven down to earth. When we talk about having a heavenly perspective, that does not mean trying to turn this fallen world into heaven. The reason why I make this third point is because Paul, maybe even surprisingly, also makes this point at the end of verse 1, where it would have been good enough for him to simply say, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, that would have been good enough, you would think. But Paul, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, added a caveat to the end of verse 1, where he said, put your focus on where Christ is, but then he adds an extra detail about Christ that is important in us in our perspective, where he says where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, it's about halfway in your Bible. This is what it looks like for me. If you've gotten to Proverbs, you've gone too far. If you see Kings or Samuel, you went too far the other way. Do you know that Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament? No other verse in Old Testament Scripture is alluded to or referenced more times by the apostles than Psalm 110, verse 1. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 is merely one of many examples. If you have a study Bible that gives you cross-references, if you have a cross-reference tool like the treasury of Scripture knowledge, you can check out all the iterations of where this verse is quoted. But read silently with me as I read verse 1 of Psalm 110. This is David making a statement that was very confusing to the Jewish people, and still is, by the way. Because David says, the Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh, he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's confusing because King David was king over Israel. Who would be David's Lord, other than Yahweh, he already mentioned Yahweh. Who's this second person? That was a mystery to the Jewish people, and it still is, by the way. We always talk about Isaiah 53 being a troubling passage for the Jewish people. Psalm 110 might be even more confusing for them, because how can there be this other person called Lord who is seated at the right hand of Yahweh? The New Testament makes it clear that that person is Jesus. But you might be thinking, why does all of this matter? What does this have to do with our perspective being focused on Christ in heaven? The answer is this, that all throughout the New Testament, every single time when Jesus is being described in heaven, he is described not as sitting on the throne, but by sitting at the right hand of the Father. That is meaningful. Every single time Jesus is described in heaven, he 
He's not described as sitting on the throne. Oftentimes we say things like, Jesus is king. We say it more when a Democrat wins an election, by the way. We, we like to say that Jesus is king. It kind of makes us feel better. Uh, we, we like to proclaim Christ is king. That is true. Christ is sovereign over all things. He is Lord over all. Chapter 1 of Colossians made that clear that he's Lord over all creation. But when God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that there would be a king who would be a descendant of him, who would sit on the throne of David and rule the earth forever, we know that that person in 2 Samuel 7 was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But Jesus is not on the throne yet. He has come to be victorious over sin and death, yet he is not yet sitting on the throne. He's at the right hand of the Father. That doesn't mean that he's diminished in power. It shows that he is the means by which God's power and strength is executed. In ancient culture, someone's right-hand man would be the person who would go and do the will of the king. I have several verses that I have to go through quickly just to illustrate this. But Exodus 15, 6 describes the right hand of God as the one who shatters the enemy. Psalm 16, 11, Psalm 20, verse 6, they all give examples uh, of the right hand of the Father. You can go back on the YouTube video and look some of these up if you need to. But the right hand of God is always shown as the thing by which he destroys his enemies, the thing by which he brings about salvation. Jesus being associated with the right hand of God shows that Jesus is the means of our salvation. He is the means of creation. But he is not sitting on the throne as king yet. He's been inaugurated. He's been victorious. It's inevitable. But he hasn't come into the city and sat on the throne. The point is that when we say that we are supposed to have a heavenly perspective, we need to have a perspective that remembers that there is unfinished work that Jesus has not yet done. Having a Christ heavenly perspective does not mean trying to be king on Jesus' behalf. It doesn't mean trying to establish his throne on earth for him. He can do that fine on his own. And he will do it on his own someday in the future during his second coming. When he comes again and when he comes on earth, just as predicted in the Old Testament, and sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem, what we call the millennial kingdom, that is when Jesus will sit on the throne. In fact, in the New Testament, that's even what Jesus predicted in Matthew chapter 19. And in Matthew chapter 5, when he refers to himself sitting on the throne, look at when he refers to it. In the new world, not on this world. We lose down here. This world is the world of Satan. Satan has power on this earth for a short time because God and Jesus allows him to. But us having a heavenly perspective does not mean that we can or should try to conquer this world for Christ. Jesus, by the way, does not command his disciples to build his kingdom. Those words do not appear in Jesus' great commission. But what he does tell Christians to do is to proclaim the kingdom. The king has been victorious. The king is coming back to take his throne. Our job as his ambassadors is to tell the world. 
to show people with our love, with our actions, with our words, by teaching and by baptizing that Jesus, he's in heaven, our focus is on heaven, our focus is on the future, but someday Jesus is going to come and make a new world. He's bringing heaven with him, and we can hope and trust in that. All throughout biblical history, we see faithful people dying without receiving all the things that were promised to them. Abraham died in faith having not uh, received the promised land. Moses died in faith having not entered the promised land. The Israelites, they all died, many of them in faith, not ever seeing the Messiah. But Hebrews 11 says that they all died in faith looking forward to a future city. Their perspective was on the future. Let's also have a perspective that looks to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as the goal, the person, the relationship that we are pursuing, the love that we are pursuing, uh, in remembrance that we have been resurrected with Christ, but also in remembrance that he has unfinished work. That in this earth we will have trouble, but to take heart that Christ has overcome the world and he is coming back to set things right. Let's make our faith and our perspective future and live under that heavenly perspective. Pray with me. Dear Lord, this is not only your church, this is your world. It's the world the Father created by you and through you, and also for you, Lord. Lord, we groan in these earthly tents, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, we look forward to the day when you will make things right, when you will allow justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream, like the prophet Amos said. But Lord, in the meantime, give us faith to live resurrected lives until you give us a resurrected body. Give us faith in a heart that is after your heart, that is after Jesus Christ, and do not give us a selfish heart that is trying to do the work of Christ on his behalf. Give us a hope and trust that waits for him to come to do the work and proclaim him in the meantime, to proclaim the gospel of him in the meantime. We do all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, church family. Good seeing you all again this morning. Have a great day. Go in peace.